As we got to the end of chapter 11 of Hebrews, we saw that uh, the writer really was saying in those closing words of the chapter that in fact everybody uh, who has followed the Lord, particularly thinking of Old Testament days as he was, has done so by faith. Uh, As Chuck said so helpfully this morning, not by the law, but by faith. They uh, came to possess the promises and to enjoy the promises and enjoy the grace of God in their lives. And it's as though now as we turn to chapter 12 and at this point the writer is now applying uh, personally to the Hebrews what he has been talking about from the past. It's as though he's saying, well, it's your turn now. It's over to you. It's over to you now to do what they uh, uh, did, to be as they were. And he's doing this here under the metaphor of the Roman amphitheater. We can look at this firstly in terms of the event he is describing. Now we can underestimate just how much the Roman amphitheater was important culturally and for entertainment across the Roman Empire. Uh, The remains of at least 230 have been found by archaeologists across the empire, 230 amphitheaters. The biggest of those is still, to some extent, standing at Rome, and that had an estimated capacity of 87,000 people. So we've got something there very equivalent to a very large football stadium in terms of its capacity. Uh, And clearly the vast majority were not participating They were spectators as they sat there in row upon row in the crowded tiers of the amphitheater. Really, the writer seems to have three groups of people in mind as he comes with this opening exhortation to the chapter. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In the first case, he is thinking of the actual participants, those who would take part in the various events. And he has particularly in mind what was in those days the most important event. Perhaps it still is, I don't know. There seems so many different kinds of events now in the Olympics. Um, but certainly in those days it was foot racing which was the most significant and particularly long distance running, uh, what we would perhaps call a marathon. Uh, that was the event that, was, that received the most time and the most attention And he is obviously referring to that as our writer when he talks about running the race with endurance, running with endurance, the race that is set before us. He has in mind, of course, not as some sort of quick dash, a short sprint. That is a very technically difficult race uh, and it has a, a very intense burst of energy, but then it's over. But that's not what he's thinking of here, as we can see because he brings in that thought of 
endurance, that thought of patient perseverance. So he has in mind the participants. Uh, He has in mind, too, those who have already run this race, this race of faith, and completed their course. That's what he's been talking about in chapter 11. And that's why we have this connective word in verse 1, therefore, or if you have an AV, wherefore, we also, since we are surrounded. He's looking back, but he's also paying attention to the present. In the light of all those who have run the race and have finished the course, now then. And then he has a reference, it seems, to the general onlookers. In one sense, it may be exactly the same as those who have run the race before. It's hard to say whether that is what he has in mind or whether he has in mind the thought that those who have gone to heaven, those who have left this world, are like onlookers looking on to the Christian race. I don't think we can be absolutely sure. I think it's more likely he is just referring back to these historical examples and saying, well, imagine it is as though they were literally watching you. Uh, as though they were literally watching you, if that, sorry, as though they were watching you metaphorically. And if they were, and if they could, you could think of them as urging you on. Now, this is the way that this particular uh, picture has been understood in church history. Let me just quote to you um, an early preacher called John Chrysostom the golden-tongued preacher who preached around 400 AD, uh, particularly in the eastern, what would now be thought of as the Byzantine part of Christendom. And he speaks to people who went to Olympic Games. He says, many of you have been spectators at the Olympic Games, and not only spectators, but also enthusiastic partisans and admirers of the competitors. You know then that during the days of the contests, And also all night long, the herald thinks of nothing else and has no other care than that the combatant should not disgrace himself when he goes forth. If therefore he who is about to engage in a contest before men uses such great forethought, much more will it befit us to be continually thoughtful and earnest since our whole life is a contest. You see, he's applying it in terms of what they uh, were going through, what they were intending, that's exactly the way in which we should be intending to run the Christian life. So the writer here is saying, consider these people who've gone before, this great cloud of witnesses, and in the light of that, run the race, In the light of that, take part in this grueling endurance race. It's a call to patient endurance. It's a call to keep going. It's not a call to some kind of mere spectatorship. You see how he's not not including that in his exhortation. He's not speaking here to armchair spectators like those people... Uh, sat there in the amphitheatre. 
He's not speaking to couch potatoes and people who want a laid-back religion. He's speaking, speaking to those who are going to actually participate in the race, and that is you Hebrew Christians, if you intend to go on with Jesus Christ. And it's us too if we intend to go on with Jesus Christ. Don't imagine that you're in some sort of easy-going stroll. Don't imagine even that you're in some quick sprint and then it's all over and you can just flop out. What you need to understand is that this is an ongoing endurance race. It's a continuous, long-distance process. It's not some once-for-all special crisis, as sometimes people have thought of and taught about the Christian life, or maybe two crises very often, conversion and then some sort of special uh, second blessing or baptism of the Spirit or something else. He's saying it's not that. It's continuing Persisting in the race, just going on and on and on. And to do so, you have to lay aside every hindrance. You have to lay aside anything that would hinder you in this race. You can't imagine these days in the Olympic Games, people running the course with Wellington boots on, or with flip-flops, or with hard hats, or with boiler suits, or anoraks. You can't imagine it, can you? They would, they would lose not almost minutes, let alone seconds, from the course time if they did that. They're going to lay aside these things in order to run. And he tells us what he has in mind. He says, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Because it is a long-distance endurance event, there are things you must lay aside. And he's speaking particularly to uh, Christians who had particular weights and particular sins and particular weaknesses. In their case, there was the weakness of what we might call indolence. Verse 12 of our passage, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. He said, you, you can get to a point where you're just too lazy you just want things too easy. It's very hard to admit to that sin, isn't it? It's easier to admit to other sins than the sin of just sheer turpitude, of sheer laziness. Laziness in reading your Bible, laziness in prayer, laziness in doing things for the Lord Jesus and going on with him. But he's speaking to believers who have that problem. They had a problem with fixation, with Judaism. We've seen that as we've gone through this letter. They were fixated on their old religion. Of course, when they were saved, when they came to Christ, they were prepared for anything. We're told they took joyfully even the spoiling of their goods. Economic deprivation, persecution seemed no problem to them at the start because they had the thrill of knowing the new covenant written upon their hearts, of knowing the law of God written on their hearts, of knowing Jesus Christ as their saviour. But as things got more difficult, and perhaps in one sense more and more difficult, uniformly difficult, they began to get discouraged. 
And they began to look back to the old religion, to the old traditions. And there was particular temptation for this because the old traditions were originally from God. The priesthood, the temple, the sacrificial system, it was from God. And so they had half an excuse. But what they were failing to understand is that the coming of Jesus Christ fulfilled all those types and fulfilled the sacrificial system that Jesus Christ is, is now our great high priest and we need no high priest, other high priest with gorgeous robes. We need no other priesthood. We need now even now no temple. Uh, and they turned away from that and so they were fixated with past traditions but they didn't have Christ in those traditions. And again, we can see how it's easy particularly those of us who come from religious backgrounds, maybe nominal Christianity of a particular denomination or a particular kinds. When things get difficult, you begin to look back with a bit of nostalgia. We're thankful to God for what we did learn in those days, and he uses even those kinds of things to teach us and prepare us. But we can have a wrong kind of nostalgia and a wrong kind of longing because we've lost hold of Jesus Christ. Those are perhaps slightly less wrong things than the other things that he might uh, identify as hindering us in the race. What about sins? What about just sin itself? He has a lot to say. Does the writer, does do the apostles about the way sin can drag down our Christian lives. Think of Ephesians chapter 4, what he said to the Ephesian church. Uh, as he tells him in verse 21 and following, um, you've heard of him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. And you ask yourself, is he speaking here to Christians? Yes, he is. Is it possible Christians can lie? Yes, it is. Is it possible that Christians can play fast ones financially? Yes, it is. Is it possible that Christians can have corrupt words proceeding out of their mouth, character assassination, and things that shouldn't be said? Yes, it is. And these are weights. These are hindering things. These are things that prevent us from running the Christian life. And he's saying, lay these things aside and do it by faith, not by the works of the law. This is not a call, this particular exhortation to what has often been called will worship uh, as a way of identifying a particular frame of mind that the Apostle Paul speaks of in Colossians 2. In Colossians 2, he identifies a particular frame of mind that uh, 
was endangering the Colossian church, who having become Christians, they then tried to live a life of holiness by subjecting themselves to man-made regulations. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concerning things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. That's not the way, he says, to lay aside sin. That's not the way to deal with the problems of the flesh by some kind of monastic self-imposed asceticism, some kind of list of rules and regulations as to what you do on a Sunday, for example, and what you do on a, on a midweek and how you go about your particular uh, devotions. Of course, we're to keep the Lord's Day as a special day. We're to, we're to be devoted to Jesus Christ, but it, it, that's not the way through some kind of man-made regulation, will worship. How are we to do it? We're to do it by faith. That's the whole point of what he has been teaching in Hebrews 11. Well, how do we do it by faith? Well, I don't know if it was the Apostle Paul writing Hebrews. It may well have been. There are one or two indicators. I'm not going to get into that one. But if it was the Apostle Paul, that same Apostle has explained in Romans chapter 6 how we are to run the race by faith. And if you were to look more closely sometime at Romans 6, you'll see that he lays out that when we became Christians, we were baptized by the Spirit into Jesus Christ. And this, of course, shows itself in the rite of Christian baptism. But he's not speaking here about the rite, the ceremony of Christian baptism, the ordinance. He's speaking about union with Jesus Christ which is a baptism in the Holy Spirit or a baptism into Christ by the Spirit. And he says, when that happened to you, you were united with him in his death. And you were buried with him into death. And just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, you were raised with him to newness of life. And you're united together in the likeness of his death, but also in the likeness of his resurrection. And therefore, you, this is how you think about yourself. You think about yourself as crucified with Christ as far as the old man goes and raised with Christ into newness of life. And therefore, sin does not have any dominion over you. You can say no to sin and you must say no to sin. You can say no to temptation and you must say no to temptation and you're not obliged to it. You're not obliged to that particular sin. Whether or not society says that's fine, you were made that way. No. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as alive from the dead. Uh, from the dead. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. That is how it is by faith to keep reckoning yourself dead to sin, to keep mortifying the deeds of the body by looking to Jesus Christ and saying no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness. 
in the heat of the moment when Satan comes, in the more long-lasting trials that Satan keeps bringing in a subtle and siege-like way, it's the same process. It's not a once-for-all event, which is over in a few moments or over in a weekend on some course or some conference. It's a, a race, it's a, a Christian race that's, that's to be endured. And it goes on and on and on, right through to the end. And maybe a very bitter end for some. So that's the event. But you see, secondly, he gives us an example. There's someone else who has run this race before us, and it's Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He has run the race. He's the pioneer in that sense. We think of how the writer has referred to the Lord Jesus Christ already in this letter from this perspective in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. He says, For it was fitting for him, by whom are all things, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Notice that phrase, the captain of their salvation, the leader of salvation, the one who's gone ahead, but he's gone ahead to suffer. In chapter 6 and verse 20, as he speaks about entering into the veil, behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He is the forerunner. He's the one who's already run the race and endured to the finish. And so he's saying that part of this ability to finish the event and to endure this event is to hold in clear view Jesus, who's already run it, looking unto Jesus. That's part of what it means, to hold him in view, to remember that you're not the only one who's had to endure what you have to endure for the Lord's sake. You're not the only one, as we were reminded so helpfully this morning, you're not the only one who has had to suffer rejection or whatever it is that is coming against you for Christ's sake, because Jesus has endured far, far worse. Hold him in view. Never forget Christ. Never forget who it is who's gone before us and what he suffered for us, enduring the cross, despising the shame. Never forget the agony and the sweat uh, and the nails and the, uh, and the crown of thorns. Never forget the cry of dereliction from the cross. Never forget the uh, unknown sufferings of Christ as he became sin for us He who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Never forget that. But also consider him, as it says in verse 3, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. 
Consider him in a very special way. Consider what he went through. And consider what kept him going. Consider what kept him going. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Yes, consider his pain. Consider as we were thinking this morning of his hostility, the contradiction of sinners against himself. But also consider the joy that was set before him. What kept him going? Why did Jesus go through with it? Well, he is the good shepherd. And he had the joy of the shepherd looking after his sheep. He is the man of war, the Lord of hosts. And he had the joy of the man of war, the Lord of hosts, looking over his conquests. He is the king. And he had the joy before him of thinking of that kingdom as he thought of all that the Father had given him. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel. He is the bridegroom. And he had before him the joy of receiving the bride of Christ, that bride, the church, of receiving her and welcoming her and rejoicing over her as a bridegroom over his bride. He is the farmer. We've been thinking of harvest, haven't we, at this time of the year. He is the farmer, and he had the joy before him of thinking of the harvest gathered in, the harvest of the, the masses of souls for whom he died, the countless numbers, numbers like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in heaven for whom he died. Yes, he had such motivation. And for that motivation, and that motivation which really was centered upon his love for us, he endured the cross. Consider him as your example. And realize that we too have motivation. Our motivation is that we might please God, that we might please Jesus. That whether in the body or out of the body, we might be accepted of him. Our motivation is to please this one who's loved us with an everlasting love. Our motivation is to please our great general, our great field marshal. Our motive is to please our great good shepherd, to please the farmer, to please the king, to please the bridegroom. Our motive is to be to the praise of his glory. Consider him. The event, the example, and thirdly, the enabling the enabling. Let us run with race, sorry, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's a tremendous thing to realize that you haven't stumbled into this race by accident. You're not like one of these spectators. I think I've seen it on the media, perhaps um, one of these marathon races or even one of these long distance cycle races where some unfortunate participant stumbles and gets into the track of, of, of somebody and causes a, a, a furore on the track. You haven't come into this race by accident. It may feel like that because God's ways with us are so 
past understanding and uh, he suddenly grips us sometimes uh, and we, we're amazed at what he's doing in us and through us and with us. But basically, nothing is by accident. We've been brought by God into this Christian race if we are Christians. He is the author of our faith. He's the originator of our faith. That's what the gospel is about. That's what the gospel, as Hebrews has expounded it, is about. It's about a great high priest whose blood atones for our sins. It's about a great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for his people. It's about a great high priest who is God and who does the will of his Father in heaven uh, in perfect coordination and love with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And there's no conflict within the Trinity. From the beginning of time, from before time began, he had determined that by himself he would purge our sins. It's him who has originated our faith. And therefore, it's him who we have to thank, to bless, that when the gospel came to us eventually to the point where we believed, it was because the Holy Spirit was at work within us. It's called election. It's called choice. It was God's preordaining, foreordaining choice which caused you to respond to the gospel because he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and without blame before him in love. He's the originator. He's the author of your faith. And therefore the race that's set before you, it may seem very difficult. It may seem very discouraging. But actually, he who does all things well has got that race marked out. The flags are there, and the indications are there which way to go. The race marshals are all along the way. The angels are all along the way, and they're saying, that's the way, go in it. And he has a path of good works foreordained for each one of us, and we're saved unto those good works. Because Jesus is not just our example, he is also our enabler. He is our enabler. This is what Hebrews 2, Hebrews also has been telling us. He is a great high priest who cannot but be touched by the infirmities and the needs of his people. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. He suffered being tempted. He knows how to succor us. He knows what it's like to feel tempted to the uttermost. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And so we can come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And also the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, he's a comforter. And as perhaps you've heard before, if you've heard of that term comforter expounded from a pulpit, you'll know it's not just a sort of there, there, never mind kind of comfort. It's a, it's a come on, you can do it sort of comfort. It's an encouraging, forward movement kind of comfort. He is our enabler in this race that is set before us. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, 
Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. That's it. There's a power at work in us, brothers and sisters. And he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think as that power works in us and through us. And that may mean just some really dreary duty that you don't really want to be doing part of you. But there's a power within you that does it for Christ's sake. And that may mean that really awful person that you have to relate to that you don't really want to relate to but you have to do it for Christ's sake in the workplace or in the school wherever it is there's a power within you just to do just that it comes from the Holy Spirit it comes from God at work in you and through you he's the author and he is the perfecter of our faith he's the one who brings it through to perfection I wonder if you have faith I wonder if I'm speaking to some here who have not this faith. You know, it's a gift of God. It's not will worship. It's not you doing some special procedure in order to earn merit marks with God. That's how it's put across in a lot of Christendom and certainly outside Christendom and the various religious uh, fields of this world. But that's, that's not the true faith. The true faith is laying hold on Jesus Christ. The true faith is closing with Jesus Christ. And that's God's gift. That's God at work in you. Oh, you say, well, that's fine. I can, I can just sit back and wait till it happens. No, you can't. You're told by commandment, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a command. It's your responsibility to believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an imperative. And if you don't believe, that's your fault. You've broken God's command. So you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You obey the commandment. And he comes into your heart and washes you from your sins. And you say, oh, I'm a great person. I I really made that decision. No, you didn't. You're not a great person. Although you don't realize it, your believing was the gift of God. What you did in obedience, perhaps what you did trembling and unsure in some respects, it was actually the gift of God at work in you. And as you go on in the Christian life and as you read your Bible, you understand that more and more. And you understand that faith is in fact this wonderful miracle of man obeying and yet God enabling And that's true of the Christian life. It's this wonderful miracle of us obeying and following the Lord Jesus and reckoning ourselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness and yet at the same time, God enabling us. And so you can see therefore why there is this note of exhortation. You've got to do it. You really have. You can't sit back. You can't be indolent in this matter. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, 
who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Amen.